Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers, teachers, and all of God's creatures. I'm Tim McNinch, Assistant Professor of Hebrew Bible at Christian Theological Seminary. And I'm Rosie Candethel, PhD candidate for Hebrew Bible at Hemry University. Our co-host, the famed Reverend Dr. Rachel Wren, has the week off. The lectionary options for November 20th are, hmm, let me see, Jeremiah 23 or, hmm, Jeremiah 23 again? Wait, what? It's the same text in both columns. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. And take a look at this. If you want the psalm from the semi-continuous path, what psalm do they suggest? Luke chapter one? What? (laughs) I know, it's so weird. Anyway, the lectionary as a whole is really pushing Jeremiah 23 this week, but we've already got two past episodes on that very text. So I've decided to take up the psalm that's from the strand that's also matched up to the gospel reading. Uh, because it's a psalm that I really love, Psalm 46. Ooh, Psalm 46, that is a good one. But before you get started, let me insert the obligatory plug that if you want to help us keep the podcast going and growing, you can make a donation at our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. And if you're a regular listener, please consider setting up a monthly donation. Three, five, ten bucks, whatever works for you. We really appreciate it. I've already given monthly to the podcast. Wait, I wasn't talking to you. You donate to this podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. What's the old uh, hair club for men slogan? I'm not just the producer. I'm also a client. (laughs) Okay, Tim. I don't quite get the math there, but we're grateful for your support. Anyway, (laughs) what do you have for us this week to help us understand and maybe preach from Psalm 46? Well, on the surface, this psalm seems like mostly a bunch of fluffy, generic kind of praise song lyrics that give a general sense of God being helpful somehow to us and being exalted, whatever that means. But I'd say a closer look at the poetry of this song reveals an extended metaphor of the precise kind of help that this poet is expecting from God. Hmm. Okay, I'm intrigued. You've got my attention. What do you see here? What is the metaphor? <laughs> well, let me let me back up and then like zero in on it with a quick look at the structure of the the whole of this short poem. The the first few verses, and remember, um, the Hebrew and the JPS translation count the heading as verse one. So the versification will be like one ahead of other English translations. Anyway, the the first few verses, one through three or two through four in Hebrew. Leading up to that first uh, Selah, they have a bunch of natural imagery, earth, mountains, seas. And then after that, we shift in the next few verses to the quote-unquote city of God, meaning Jerusalem, with imagery of its being under siege. But the section ends with a refrain, Adonai of hosts is with us. Adonai tsevaot imanu. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Then after another Selah, we get the final section of the poem, which has a bunch of language about ending war and exalting God. And it rounds out with a repeat of that refrain. Okay, so um, it has three sections. Nature, siege, exaltation. It would appear so, but actually it's just all warfare imagery. Okay, you're going to have to explain that. Okay, so the, I think the middle section is the most transparent in this way. When it, when it says, um, there is a river whose streams gladden the city of God, 
That's not actually just a like bucolic metaphor. Right. There is actually a water source in Jerusalem, right? The Gihon Spring. Exactly. And the strategic value of that spring is that when the city is under siege, it has a built-in water supply so that it can outlast the thirsty besiegers. But what's more, Jerusalem was home to God's temple. So the poet says, basically, we've got water, we've got God here, nothing can touch us. When dawn comes after the long night of siege, God thunders out and the earth, meaning enemy forces, melts away. And then it has that refrain, Adonai tsevaot imanu, misgav lanu Elohei Yaakov. All right. I, I can see how that section has military or, or martial imagery embedded in it. But what about the rest of the psalm? Hmm. So, so the beginning section, then um, it has a bunch of natural, I would say even cosmic imagery. And often in poetry, the relative stability or instability of the natural order is used to represent the, the same sort of um, stability or instability in the geopolitical sphere. So when the poet talks about the shifting earth or mountains shaking in the heart of the sea, and by the way, who has ever heard of mountains in the heart of the sea? <laughs> that's, uh, that's actually a piece of ancient cosmology where they conceived that the earth was held up by these uh, submerged pillars or mountains under the sea. When those pillars are stable, well, you know, all is well. But when they totter, you get earthquakes, tsunamis, etc. Anyway, all that instability is a way for the poet to talk about shifts on the geopolitical stage. When the great empires of the world are shifting the balance of power via these big world wars, it can be scary to the smaller vassal kingdoms like Israel was, who are often caught powerless in the crossfire. But this poet says that with God as their refuge, Israel doesn't need to fear when the great empires shift in roar and foam. Hmm. Okay, so there's not such a break between the first and middle sections. There's a bunch of military chaos in the wide world, but in the city of God, there's stability and security. Yeah, that's, that's a good summary. In fact, it might be worth noting that the two words translated refuge in verse 1 and in the refrain in 7 and 11, or I guess 2, 8, and 12 in Hebrew, are actually two different words. The first one is machase, a hiding place or a shelter, which is a great fit for that uh, kind of chaos warfare wordplay in that first section. When the waters of political chaos roar and foam, God gives them a place to hunker down and shelter in safety. But then in the refrain, the word refuge is misgav, literally a, a place of great height. I kind of picture God holding Jerusalem up out of reach, like, like uh, sort of the tall kid holding the basketball high up while the shorter kids are all jumping around trying to reach it. The, the poet's saying that when the attackers come, the God of Jacob is our high ground. Hmm. That's actually a really potent image. So... I imagine then the last section is also part of this extended metaphor. Yes. I mean, when you read the poem through this lens, all that talk in the last section about making wars cease and breaking the bow, shattering the spear, burning the shields, it's actually not an image of peaceful nonviolence. Quote unquote, making wars cease is what emperors do by brutally conquering all their competitors. The disarmament described here isn't a war protest. 
It's a post-conquest subjugation measure. So this section images God as a great emperor, overpowering all earthly rulers for the sake of Israel. When it says, I am exalted among the nations, it's not actually an image of like friendly multi-ethnic worshiping <laughs> community, right? It's a statement of global domination, which brings us to the most famous verse in the poem, verse 10 or 11 in Hebrew. Be still and know that I am God. That verse is always interpreted as such a peaceful, meditative, contemplative moment in the psalm, right? Just this this quiet wash, but you're doing something else with yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so tell me, Rosie, how does it read in the context we've been talking about? I guess it's more of like a like a cease and desist order. That's exactly what it is. It's a threat to all like would-be competitors. Be still. That's the hifil imperative, harpu. Like like a cop with a gun drawn shouting freeze and acknowledge Elohim. The the JPS translation I think actually gets this right. They translate the verse desist, realize that I am God. I dominate the nations. I dominate the earth. Yeah, so that is a much more forceful reading that I'm used to hearing. The image that you're painting is of a police officer with gun drawn, uh, or just the image of overpowering strength, you know, just kind of silencing an opponent. And that is, I mean, that's pretty tough to hear and violent. Yeah, it's it's not all that easy. The there is celebration in this poem too, like the in that last line, that last refrain. The celebration is that this God who dominates the world stage is like on our side, is with us. Israel sees herself in this poem as allied with a great superpower. And that gives them a sense of security when the powers are in a tumult. I mean, that it's helpful for you to sort of frame it in terms of uh, Israel's kind of small position in the world and that it's of a, a source of comfort to be able to align themselves with someone that is powerful and, and could be violent if necessary on their behalf, right? Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. here's this uh, like fascinating poem that uses violence in some kind of creative ways or power in creative ways. How, how do you recommend preaching it? Yeah, and I appreciate you kind of bringing out those themes and and um, sort of we're, we're tiptoeing around the the problematic nature of of using right. this kind of violent warfare imagery in our sacred, mm -hmm. <laughs> peaceful scriptures, and how to how to bring that into a sermon without sort of like reinforcing some of the baggage that might come along with that. And I have to say that the tricky thing for me here is is that that kind of uh, military martial imagery is not to be universally welcomed. In fact, I find it very problematic myself. If I were writing a poem about the security that we find in God in precarious times, that's not the imagery that I would use, this sort of language of dominance and power and empire. Maybe that's partly because I recognize that I belong to a privileged and powerful community and nation and religion, etc., so it's actually not all that helpful to pile on poetic images of dominance and supremacy, much less on Christ the King or Reign of Christ Sunday, when that would only reinforce the troublesome history of Christian colonialism. But I have to say, on the other hand, I think this language has much more meaning when it's voiced by marginalized communities. 
such as Israel and Judah and what becomes the Persian province of Yehud, what they were. So if you out there are preaching in a community that's been historically oppressed by power and empire and patriarchy and colonialism, etc., then you actually might have a use for a, a sort of script-flipping affirmation that God's power is there to protect you. But for preachers like me, who may be preaching in a predominantly white American context, a context with a history of power and dominance— I think this language needs to be reimagined. A poem like this speaks a more relevant message to people like me when we imagine ourselves not as the us who can safely rest in Elohim's care, but as part of the forces of power and dominance against which God thunders, be still. I think a sermon in that context could use this poem as an invitation to consider what does being still look like for us? What are the the levers of power that we're being called to take our hands off? How can we lend our support to those who are sitting hunkered down in God's care? I think that turns the poem around in a kind of challenging way, but I think there's potential to explore there in a sermon. Yeah, definitely a challenge, as you've outlined here, for for preachers both in dominant cultures and for preachers who want to access an assurance for communities that have been historically marginalized. Wrestling with the helpfulness or unhelpfulness of military or violent imagery, that's always precarious ground to tread. Yeah, and I know you know that because you've been working on that in your dissertation on the the violence that's in the book of Esther. Right. You know it, right? So immediately my little alarm bell started ringing. Yeah, I thought, of course, this is, this is going to be tough. Well, um, Tim, thanks for helping us see um, the cohesion of this psalm in some ways, and then also nudging us towards some possibilities for preaching it, along with uh, nuancing some of the, the difficulties and challenges that are mm. here. My pleasure. Friends, that will wrap us up for the week. Thanks for tuning in to First Reading. We hope you've gotten something helpful from this conversation. And if so, please consider taking a moment or two to share the episode with a preacher, teacher, or Bible lover in your life to help expand the First Reading podcast community. You can also help us keep this going by supporting the podcast financially. We welcome donations on our website, firstreadingpodcast.com, where you'll also find nearly 200 searchable back episodes. You can always reach us via email at firstreadingpodcast at gmail.com or drop us a line on Facebook. Our gratitude goes to our friends at Trinity Lutheran Seminary for their supportive grant. And once again, thanks to all of you for listening. Until next time, I'm Rosie Candethal. And I'm Tim McNinch. Have a great week.